It is Destazapod, our first Q&A version of this podcast in many, many weeks. Uh, we have some great questions here. We have a lot to get to. So we're going to get to it right now. It's Destazapod. We had a lot of new patrons sign up in July, so I just want to welcome everybody. Uh, we have over, I think, uh, over 10 new patrons, which, you know, considering how small our wonderful community is, that is a uh, nice influx of people. So welcome to everyone. I hope you find your footing here. It is so far the best community on earth. Hopefully that holds up. Um, we're going to go today. We're going to start off with the question of the week, and this comes from Charlie Pope. And this question kind of leads me into some other larger thoughts I've had recently. So Charlie asks, I saw Barbie this weekend. My question is, if you hypothetically could do a crossover toy with any indie toy company, what would you make? Example, Cray in Mythic Legions, a hob made by Plunderlings, Saima in I Am Elemental, etc. Um, so I'm going to answer this question. I'm also going to indulge myself in some of the thoughts I've had rolling around in this old brain of mine. Um, I would say that, you, you know, like these are all great ideas. They're, they're definitely things that have crossed my mind previously. Uh, I would say that Cray in Mythic Legions is actually pretty on the nose and something I have been thinking about since I attended the uh, Legions Con last, uh, I guess that was the fall, right? Or late summer. Um, and that to me like makes the most sense, but here's why it'll never happen and why I don't even indulge this thought too much. I do believe that everybody has their place in the queue, right? And now I think that this can sound or feel like gatekeeping, but there has to be some level of gatekeeping for online communities, regardless of how much it's enforced or the size of the community. There's always going to be sort of established people within a fan base that help maintain or groom that ecosystem. You know, this may be a hurdle for new people joining a community. You might find some of the older people are less helpful or more exclusive about the information they share. I don't think we particularly have that problem here in Knights of the Slice, but I've certainly seen it in other communities. Um, but we all have our place in the queue of Knights of the Slice, right? I'm at the front of the queue, obviously. I've got to steer the ship and all that. Uh, and then there is a hierarchy that is pretty fluid, but it does exist. There are people who have been here for a long time. There are brand new people. This is just a sort of a way that a community self-sorts in many regards. Now, a small subsection of our community are makers. You know, these are people that are making resin toys. These are people that... Uh, aspire to be toy makers. These are people that have projects they're working on pretty diligently and have been for many years. And for those people, they're a little higher up in the queue because they've spent their time rolling up their sleeves and working with the community, sharing their work, attending shows, showcasing what they have. And at a certain point, some of those people will have an actually produced piece that you know, maybe comes out in Knights of the Slice or maybe in the larger Glios community or maybe independently. Um, if we look at past successes here, these sort of homegrown 
squires of the slice that have contributed something that gets made into a real manufactured piece. I guess the best example would be David White Mechazone, right? Now, David is a super talented guy, and uh, I did not put him on the map, right? He is a talent that uh, has, you know, his skill has nothing to do with Knights of the Slice. He just happens to have sort of been there at the beginning and contributed a lot of great projects. And now David is, you know, a pretty in-demand digital sculptor uh, for both Super 7. And uh, also recently we saw his enormous mech suit that he designed for Mezco. Like, the, David's the best of the best. And uh, having known him for many years, he designed Capsule version 1 and Capsule version 2. And, uh, you know, that is a Squire of the Slice who has actually had their, their work produced. And there are, you know, probably a handful of other people who have contributed a head here, a accessory, uh, and the list is too numerous. I Just for brevity's sake, I'm not going to go through it. But those people, you know, they tend to be towards the top of the queue and, and uh, I would say get a little more attention for the, their projects and the time they're putting in. And now with this next bit, I want to be very clear, it should be taken in the spirit for which is intended. I'm not singling anybody out. And if you're listening to this and it seems like I'm personally speaking to you, I'm not. I'm speaking in very general terms. Uh, there are new people who arrive on the scene and they want to skip the line and they want to be the next Glios maker. They want to be, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, and the, the issue there is that there is a path to sort of coming into that hierarchy, into that upper tier, into being a maker and being somebody who contributes. And eventually, if that's your goal to be someone who has works published or a piece produced or something manufactured in China, whatever the case may be. And so that the, the path to that cannot be skipped. You have to put the time in. You have to iterate for years and years on the idea. You have to, if you're a toy maker, run things in resin. You have to attend shows. You have to hobnob with the squires in person. You have to sell your goods. You have to do it at one and two pieces at a time if necessary. But there's always going to be enthusiastic people who think they have a great idea, and maybe it is a great idea, but they want to skip to the front of the line and they want the full treatment. They want to have uh, be taken under the wing and sort of given the keys of the kingdom and get to manufacture their toy instantly overnight and become the next hit Glyos maker. And while there isn't actually anybody specifically embodying all those qualities, in the past I have encountered this. There are people that don't, they're not interested in the community. They don't really want to put time into uh, interacting with us or contributing or critiquing or showing their work. They just want to go straight to the front of the line and get on the ride. And there just are not opportunities for that, regardless of how good your design or concept may be. And so I'm saying all this, I'm laying this all out in terms of Knights of the Slice in our community because I understand this. This is how I have decreed these things will work. You put the time in, you attend the shows, you release in resin for a few years, and then maybe you start to think about being able to manufacture. Those are the rules. That's how we do things in this community. 
And so I am able to apply that same rationale to something like Mythic Legions. I don't get to cut in front of the line and have my Cray figure made, even though they have tons of perfect parts that would work excellent to execute this character, and I have a great working relationship with Eric, and I have a great working relationship with Bill, and I've known the other Eric for many, many years, and I maybe I could call in a favor, bend a few wrists, and they would do it for me, but I'm not going to go down that path because there is a queue, and I have a position in a queue. Uh, going to Legion's Con and seeing all of the people set up there, they must have had 30 vendors, the majority of those people are just making accessories for Mythic Legions, meticulously hand-painting everything, making, you know, their own stories, just an incredible, it's kind of like Toy Pizza Con times 30 in many respects. Um, there's a tremendous amount of craftsmanship and artisans that are spending all day long in the Mythic Legions world and making it a wonderful community. So for me to sort of go to the owners of Four Horsemen and say, hey, it's, it's Cray's turn. I want to do this figure. Can we do it? That sort of circumvents all of the people that have put years of their work into boosting Mythic Legions. And, and it completely skips the queue and puts me at the front of it. And I'm essentially holding my hand out saying, hey, it's my turn. So while I might be titillated by the fantasy and the idea of having a Cray Mythic Legions figure, I, there's no way in hell I would ever make that imposition because I understand there's a community there. There are people that have worked very hard. I'm sure that a few of their fans have become contributors to their overall output. You know, I'm, I'm sure a couple custom people have done real sculpts that have become real toys for them. And so I understand the balance of these things. And uh, there's no way in hell I think of myself so importantly that I'm going to cut ahead of all those other craftsmen who have been out there, you know, beating the drum for Mythic Legions well beyond my sort of casual engagement with the fan base and with, the, with collecting the line. Um, so that's sort of how I view these things and, and how I think about them. And, and I kind of apply that, you know, wherever there is a you know, a collaboration that I would like to do. I don't want to take anybody else's place. I haven't necessarily put my time into these communities. And because I have that understanding, that's my expectation for everybody else. And I think generally we all kind of align with that thinking. It does happen every now and then. And thankfully we don't have any of this going on right now. But in years past, uh, you will get a brand new customer, right? And they come in and they spend a lot of money right away. They go on eBay and they buy a bunch of older figures. They do a, a ton of trades. They boost their collection and it all happens in a very manic state. It seems to stack on top of itself in a very short amount of time. And then this person will reach out to me and be like, hey, I want to run my own figure. I want my own color exclusive. Also, I have my own toy ideas. I'd like to get those made. How do we do this? Let's go. And this is somebody who Granted, has spent a lot of money, but not a name I know, nobody who's come to our shows, nobody I've met in person. And uh, inevitably, these people always burn out pretty quickly and sell off their collections and leave the collecting hobby because they don't get what they want from me. And I don't know that there is any way to 
placate people like that. But I've seen it happen probably five or six times. These people come on very hot and heavy. They throw around a lot of money. They think that that is a signifier or a a sort of way to influence me to help them make their bigger dreams happen, even though these are not people that have been in the community, that have done trades, that have helped other squires out. Uh, it's a weird phenomenon. It's happened several times, but, uh, you know, thankfully we don't have any of that going on right now. I would say also, um, I know I'm going very long with this question and we're in a completely sort of different hemisphere than what was asked, but um, the way I think about when new people arrive on the scene for Squires of the Slice and they have their projects and they're excited about them and they want to make them happen, um, I think that the best approach in these situations is my approach to music, right? I've not been playing music very long, maybe two, three years. Uh, I have not gone into Atlantic Records headquarters and said, hey, give me a record deal, right? I understand my place in the queue. So I play local shows, I do live streams, tens of people listen to my music, and I'm completely satisfied and happy with that because I'm going to work on the craft. I don't need this bigger dream. I don't need a big record deal. I don't need a world tour. That has nothing to do with putting time into the work itself and just getting a little bit better every day. Um, and I think that that is how I sort of approach creation within a new medium where I'm not established. And I think that that is a good path to follow um, You know, if you have creative pursuits. Absolutely get yourself into a community of like-minded people, but then understand that there is a queue and you have a position in that queue and that the only thing that moves you up in that queue is spending more time and focusing on the work and so I don't have for myself the expectation that overnight my music is going to be meaningful to millions of people and it's going to attract the attention of the mainstream you know music press I understand none of that's going to happen so instead I turn my focus to the craft itself and therefore, I have a much more meaningful pursuit. I, I don't have any bigger pressures for additional audiences or additional, you know, adoration. I understand none of that's going to happen. And that's okay. I only need to sort of do the work every day. And so, if any of that kind of helps provide alignment for the people listening to this and their creative visions, then, then good. And uh, thank you for the question, Charlie. I know went a complete tangent there, but I think there were some useful things, and it kind of intersected nicely again with a lot of things that I've been thinking about lately. Next up, a hard-hitting, impossible question to answer from journalist Brett Barnacle. Uh, just kidding. It's a fun question. I know you're an iced tea fanatic, but do you ever unwind with some hot tea in the fall-winter seasons? I'm a real nut for some nice herbal mint tea in the colder months. Hope all is well with you. Same to you, my friend. Great to meet you at Toy Pizza Con. Um, in the cooler months, and even in, in the summer months as well, I like to double fist. I like to have a hot green tea, and I like to have a cold black tea. Uh, I may flip it up and... Uh, 
when it gets a little colder out, I like a nice, a nice cha, <laughs> cha, yeah, a nice cha. I like a nice chai robis or rubois. I have no idea how it's pronounced, but uh, it's completely caffeine-free, but has a nice spiciness, not unlike coffee. Robi, robis, robis, robis. Anyway, um, so an ideal morning. I get both of those. I like both sensations. And then once a hot tea kind of cools off, I like to throw that over some ice and finish it off. But um, in any case, I'm drinking a lot of tea all day long. Next up from Gordon McKinnon Hall, how is the Jagged Age manga coming? I finished reading through my copy of Vermis this weekend, and I'm looking forward to some more dark fantasy. Um, yes, we are long overdue for a Jagged Age update. I have not been posting serialized sequential stories from Jagged Age because... Once again, I have another comic project that is a game of musical chairs. Jules and her availability changed rather abruptly, through no fault of her own, uh, about midway through the project. And so, uh, she had to depart the project, which is sad, but, you know, understandably, bigger things in life often get in the way of this. But, the good news is, Renosa has come back to the project and is actually going back and redoing all of Jules's previous pencil work on pages. And so I believe the final product will be all Renosa's work with Jules getting credit for this sort of pencils and layouts. And um, it is coming along incredible, but very slow because Renosa has a full-time job. He only works on this on the weekends. And he is so damn good, I am not going to push him to finish it any sooner than however long he needs. Uh, because of this, and because there will be, essentially the, the slate is going to get wiped clean and Jules's artwork will no longer be the finalized story, uh, it's put the serializing of the story on Patreon on hold, because it doesn't make sense if it's going to look like a completely different thing once it is published. If I had to guess, I think we can probably have a physical copy of this at the end of the year. Um, we are, I think we're at like page 17 of 22, which is good. We have, uh, you know, the lion's share of the artwork done, but there is still formatting. I have to sort of fine tune the dialogue and add the text and copy. Um, so it's coming along. It's, you know, it's really about like a page a month, which is kind of a, you know, why it's taking a very long time. But I do think it's going to be worth it. And hopefully by the end of the year, we can have this happen. I did have initial plans to do a sort of ash can preview of the book in time for Toy Pizza Con, but like many other things I wanted to do for the show, it got X'd off the list just due to time running out and not being able to kind of uh, focus on every single idea I had for the show. So overall, I'm thrilled with what's been done so far. It is going to take a long time. It looks fantastic. It looks even better than any work that's been shared previously. And I think people are really going to love this. So uh, I think we look at end of the year as a jumping off point and maybe there can be some releases tied into that if we're lucky 
Next up, we're heading over to the Discord, a top secret message board. You can access it by being a patron, patreon.com slash Stasio. I sound like Dan Larson when I go into these reads, these self-promotion reads. Not that that's a bad thing. We love Dan Larson. It's great to see him at Toy Pizza Con, by the way. Uh, Robot Assassin, can we get more Star Trek homages in the line, like a Gorn made from a Cherubian lizard head? a Crow Mega Body, or a Borg 2-pack made from a Rift Killer with a Caliber set and a Sen 5. Maybe throw in a pale Mark Mosman head for a Locutus homage. Underneath this, Dorothy points out, and I think rightfully so, I believe you can make this or something close to it with what you described today. And I do think that's probably the most reasonable response. She kind of, Dorothy stole it from me. Uh, you could do that now. You got the parts. God bless. I say everyone, uh, don't wait on me to make the stuff you want to see. This is a modular toy line. You have all the parts in the world, if you include everything O'Neill's done. Go to town. You have my blessing. I would love to see it. Everybody post picks. Next up is Skywalking. If Card Slicers was picked up and took off, would you consider a mobile version of the game? Uh, yeah, no question. And in fact, early on, that was something I was looking at. Uh, I do have a few app ideas. Um, I just, you know, to be frank, I, I don't have enough time in the day to chase these things down. Uh, I would probably before Card Slicers mobile app, I would like to do a simple design a night app, which just has sort of body parts segmented and you kind of click which body parts you want and you color them in. Uh, I would love to do just a very simple app like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. And also, it would help me tremendously in terms of brainstorming new colorways and ideas and things like that. So, um, that's kind of first on my list in the app world. But, um, you know, it's probably just a pipe dream because I, I got to stuff envelopes. Next up from Rusted Toys, I got my O'Neill Goss. Beautiful. The color combo is so close to another great Glyos color that I was wondering if Glyos colors ever get lost can't wait to build something out of this. Um, so, you know, myself and O'Neill and the majority of manufacturers, big and small, utilize the Pantone color system. Uh, these are pretty expensive books of color chips that you use to have a sort of universal language that works with China so that they can easily uh, understand the exact color you're going for and uh, appropriately uh, mix the plastic and the sort of pigment in order to ensure they have a color match. Now, this is a science, uh, sorry, this is an art form, not a science. There, there's always gonna be some slight variation to colors that are run at different times. I think normally it's pretty well dialed in and, and they, they get stuff pretty damn close. Uh, but there are sort of fluctuations, for sure. Uh, I would say that given that we use Pantone and all the O'Neill stuff is made in one factory, the chances of a color being lost is not incredibly likely, right? Because we have a sort of standard numbering system and we have this huge backlog of, uh, you know, previous plastic colors that have been run. We have samples we can send. So typically, you know, we can match something up pretty damn close. Uh, a good example recently was the Isam Waste uh, Native American Classic Knight figure. Uh, he sold out pretty quickly, uh, but the head was run 
probably a year or two previously. And we had this interesting phenomenon. The head of Isam Waste, the base plastic color was a, a light purple, a lilac color. And so when they applied the skin tone, the skin tone came out a little bit darker because the base color was kind of uh, not necessarily seeping through, but it affected the saturation of the standard flesh color, or peach color, I should say. So when it came time to run this new classic night with the bare torso, I couldn't just call out the Pantone number, right? That's not going to match because the base color for Isam is hot pink. And the base color for the head that I wanted to match it with was a more muted lilac color. So I had to resend this old head that got run, you know, 18 months prior and say, match this to this. It is not this Pantone color. And they did it beautifully. If you guys, you know, I don't think anybody's thought that these were incongruent parts, but they are from two different production waves, spread out quite a bit. Um, But it worked because, you know, they're very good at matching colors. So that's a situation where we couldn't really rely on a Pantone color because the base plastic was going to affect the hue and the saturation. So, you know, I think generally colors don't get lost uh, and you can usually figure out a creative way to get exactly what you need. Now, the best profit process to ensure you get the colors you want is to be there live in the factory when they're making paint samples, which is not something that, uh, you know, I'm always able to do, unfortunately. But um, that is kind of when you can get the most done and you can really ensure you're getting exactly what you want. Next up, we got a question from a brand new patron, Michael Losell. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Welcome to the Patreon. Uh, Question, are you a Doctor Who fan? Very good question. Very fair question. Uh, I've only actually seen one episode of Doctor Who, and that is the the Weeping Gargoyles or the Weeping Statues. I forget the name of it exactly. Uh, But tremendous episode. I really like it quite a bit. I, I don't know why I have not seen any other Doctor Who episodes, um, but that one is pretty great. I believe that's uh, David Tennant. If I'm not, no, not David Tennant. Yes, David Tennant. Fun fact, there is also a Doctor Who-themed restaurant right in Beacon, New York, on the same main street where we held Toy Pizza Con, so maybe that could be a destination for you next year during TPC. Next up, a question from Thomas Bucci. My question is regarding one paint app on the Goss. On the black Goss forearms, there is each a silver paint app. Now, going by the formula, that should mean there should be a gray paint app on the white Goss's forearms as well. However, they are instead left unpainted. Why? Uh, I don't have a satisfactory answer for this. Don't know. I would also say the uh, pearl and the black Goss armor are, in fact, the most toys Uh, designed by Mark Mosman. Those are official releases for his toy brand. So uh, perhaps direct questions regarding those two styles uh, towards Mark. He might be able to share some insight there. Heading back to the Discord, we got another question from Charlie Pope. Shardimus Prime did an interview with the Hasbro Marvel Legend team during SDCC. He asked some tougher questions to them, and they refused to go into pretty much anything. I know there is 
Definitely some behind-the-scenes stuff that can't be talked about, but I think they handled the criticism really poorly here. What are your thoughts on this interview, if you have time to watch any of it? Um, generally speaking, I don't do a deep dive into any stuff like this, right? I don't watch the HasLab or the Hasbro streams. Uh, I don't... I, I, I just... I don't care. <laughs> and take this for in the spirit for which it's intended, but... I don't have time to sort of consume news from other toy companies because I'm busy making news for my own toy company, if that makes sense. And I'm not begrudging anybody who finds this stuff exciting or wants to get into the weeds on certain toy lines like Marvel Legends or wants to hear from the designers and the presenters. That's fine. You, you're, you know, everybody should find joy in whatever they like doing. Uh, but for me... The time I spend doing that is time I could spend learning something new or packing orders or designing my next wave of figures. So I, I kind of have an aversion to um, stuff like this. It's just, it's it's so incredibly uninteresting. But I think you point out something interesting here, and that is that the sort of forward-facing personalities of these toy brands, right? The G.I. Joe team, the Power Rangers team, the, the all the people in the Hasbro streams... These are people who are not decision makers. Now, they get to make small decisions for the projects that are in their purview, but really, they are part of a much larger apparatus, and really, they are all beholden to Disney. So while there may be technically some design work that these designers do, the fate of the larger intellectual property is completely out of their hands. And at the end of the day, all of these wonderful charismatic people we watch in all these streams they're going to have to make a choice at a certain point and that is do they value their jobs or do they want to make art and they will always 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 take valuing their jobs and keeping their jobs over doing something that is risky or their bosses don't like or that could actually have a spark of creativity or something new so don't get too attached to these people. We've seen time and time again that really good designers don't have a terribly long lifespan within these companies. I would say maybe 10 years if they're lucky. It seems to be increasingly shorter and shorter intervals. And at the end of the day, however much camera time these people get, they are not the decision makers. So let us let us not be fooled. And of course, they're not going to sort of engage in criticism or give a true behind-the-scenes look at how the sausage is made because they would, frankly, lose their jobs. And, you know, if any of that makes you depressed, uh, just remember, I do provide all of that stuff. And there's plenty of other indie creators that are not shackled to these big megalith uh, corporations. So uh, you're never going to get anything of true substance from any of these things. And they kind of handpick who's interviewing them, even if Shardimus Prime is throwing a couple curveballs there, if he really sort of swung for the fences and asked something critical of maybe Ike Perlmutter, if you want to look up that guy, I mean, he's he's a decision maker at Disney, uh, they would never allow him to interview them again, right? So even if it seems like they're playing hardball, this is all sort of prearranged. It's 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 kayfabe in, in many regards. Next question from Matt Connolly. How would Rex in a Rift Killer armor face against a Goss armor? 
Is there any connection between Spice Fleet and the Goss Armor? How would a Verkill Assassin stand up against a Goss in a fight? Can Goss Armor jump into the Vector? Sorry, I'm greedy with questions this week. Um, okay, so briefly, regarding a Verkill Assassin or Rex in a Rift Killer Armor versus a Goss Armor, I'm giving it to Goss every single time. I mean, we've seen a little bit of these guys in action, and uh, they are, at this moment, the most powerful character or suit of armor in the Night of the Slice universe. Rex uh, apparently died trying to escape the Goss armor, right? And Rex is a pretty crafty, pretty strong guy, but uh, it would appear he was expired in the explosion of the Black Satellite. Um, so I'm giving it to them every time. Now, I, I, as far as has been revealed to me, I have not seen any Vector engagement abilities of the Goss armor, but we have to remember the Vector is currently shattered. There is not uh, the easy pathways that used to exist world to world. So perhaps uh, because the shattering has happened, there was no way to integrate some sort of Vector abilities into Goss armor. Now, if we recall the Black Satellite comic where we met Monroe, Monroe manipulated the Vector utilizing a modified caster wand. Um, so there does appear to be some capillaries that are forming and some pathways that can be carved, but largely the sort of super highway that would connect all these different worlds and dimensions and places and time uh, has been sort of severed in a very major way. Next question from Ian Amling. Would it be fair to say that the adult collector market and secondary market, respectively, has stripped the next generation of the experience we had in our youth? I had this conversation with my nieces and nephews and their response is that they liked video games more because there was never a problem getting them and they enjoyed sharing them with class and teammates. Um, this is a great question. I like this a lot. But I think, I think again, we are sort of... We're getting stuck in the assumption that the world as we grew up in was a permanent thing. And this is not the fault of Ian Amling or Jesse DeStasio or anybody else. This is a very real psychic phenomenon that happened in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Uh, Francis Fukuyama famously said, and I've mentioned this many times, uh, this, was, this era is the end of history. The idea that uh, capitalism and democracy are hand-in-hand hand and have globally conquered every other country, every other market, every other superstructure, and proven itself to be the ultimate form of humanity, and there will never be anything better than that. So we all grew up at the end of history with this understanding, whether it was something we agreed to or not, Subconsciously, it was there, and it was decided by the world leaders and everybody in the first world, essentially. And, and the fall of Russia was sort of the linchpin to a lot of this mindset that we didn't even realize we were being infused in. So, along with this acceptance that the West and America and consumerism and capitalism and democracy are all qualities that we've achieved and can be taken for granted, people like myself and Ian and most of the people listening here grew up, were born into, or came to adulthood in this time period. And in this time period, that meant cheap plastic goods. Uh, that meant 
action figures you could afford. And it also meant, importantly, starting in post-1980, the ability for children's programming to not have any educational value and essentially be a toy commercial for everybody. So the experiences that we had in our youth, they were very powerful, they were a lot of fun, they were very joyous, but we made the critical error of buying into this idea of us living in the end of history. And we just assume that the younger generations are being robbed of what we had, but rather it's our misconception that what we had was a stable thing that could continue on. Clearly it was not. The American way of life was built upon many unstable corpses. And we really started to see the very first crack in that facade with 9-11 and then almost everything that happened afterwards. It's been a, a pretty sharp downhill incline since then. So in some respects, we should not ask if the younger generation is being robbed of the same experiences we had. We should instead look at how the conditions have changed for this younger generation versus the conditions of what we grew up in. I have nine nieces and nephews and two young cousins, maybe maybe a couple other cousins out there too. Um, universally across the board, none of them care about uh, action figures, toys, collectibles. One or two of them might have a Funko Pop, uh, but largely, yeah, video games has supplanted everything that uh, was important to us. And I don't know that they're being robbed of anything, right? Like, there are still tactile play sets out there, if you look at the explosion of Lego. I mean, those are everywhere. Every single niece and nephew of mine has had Lego sets and enjoys Lego sets. Uh, but they also spend most of their time playing video games, and more importantly, playing video games with their friends, as you pointed out. So... Are their lives any less richer? I don't think so. You have a much higher likelihood of being, uh, having a career as a game streamer than you do as a toy designer. Uh, so I think just it's different. The playing field is different. Um, I mean, I had a ton of fun on a dirt pile with my Star Wars figures and uh, my Robotech Veritech fighter. But saying that out loud in comparison to what my nieces and nephews have today sounds an awful lot like my grandparents talking about walking eight miles in the snow uphill you know we we sort of there's a generational turnover and we become the uh, cranky old guard and you know why aren't things the way they used to be this is a tale of as old as time it it keeps repeating itself like my dad's parents uh might have been appalled by elvis but my dad was appalled by gangster rap and I am appalled by all the mumble rappers on SoundCloud. It, it's just the same cycle repeating itself in many ways. And when I see all these video essays on how things are so much worse for collectors nowadays and the bemoaning of Toys R Us and KB Toys going out of business and X, Y, and Z, you know, I have to sort of laugh at that because it's our fault for thinking those were permanent conditions, right? There was never any guarantee KB Toys was going to exist forever. There was never any guarantee that Toys R Us was going to exist forever. Why did we assume that these things would perpetuate for eons and eons? That's, you know, a, a very sort of, uh, very close-minded sort of worldview. 
So my ultimate prognosis here is that this idea of toy collecting at such a, a fever pitch is something that is largely a holdover of this golden era between 1980 and 1998, let's say, and it will become an extinguished art form. The same way like jazz is not really jazz like jazz was at the height of jazz, right? People still appreciate jazz and there's pockets of people that are devotees to the idea of it, but largely it is out of the cultural spotlight. It doesn't mean the same thing. And the conditions that created jazz as this enormous phenomenon have been extinguished. Much like reading books was supplanted by cinema and cinema was supplanted by television, television was supplanted by streaming, so too has the era of toys and collectibles come to a sort of contraction point. And it's never going to be meaningful to future generations in the same way it was to us because the conditions have changed. It is expensive to manufacture little plastic things in a way that it was not at the end of the 70s or the early 80s. So we have to understand ourselves as the torchbearers for this ancient art that is slowly dying off and meaning less and less to more and more people. Now that's not to say that there aren't going to be upticks and these are upticks in the sort of collectible world are almost always going to be tied to speculation and flippers. So if you look at the successes of something like HasLab, uh, yes, those are, you know, pretty interesting spikes in popularity for this dying art form, but it is largely underwritten by people buying a Sky Striker and flipping a Sky Striker, right? There is a sort of secondary market component that uh, drives any of these these little spikes in interest. Uh, Funko Pops, same thing. If you take away the speculator market out of Funko Pops, I don't know that it would have been the global phenomenon that it has grown to be. So it may seem like a depressing thought or a slow march to death, but that's okay. We all, we all go down that path anyway in life. So let's just be happy that we grew up in the time frame we did, that we experienced walking into a Toys R Us and seeing shelves top to bottom full of battle beasts and transformers and everything was affordable and you could get them with your allowance and that we grew up during the McFarlane era and Image Comics and the, the sharp shift that that caused within toys and collectibles. Let's just be happy that we grew up at that time. People like me and people like Ian and people like you will continue to carry the torch for toys and collectibles, but largely... This is a sun that is dying. It is losing its energy and things will grow colder and it will mean less and less culturally to everybody else. But I happen to think that in that cooling period, things can mean a little bit more because it's not everybody cashing in trying to make toys and action figures for adult collectibles. It can be just people that purely love it and that are there for the story and the craftsmanship and things like that. So... I think that's the reality we have to deal with when we sort of view the past and how good it was. Uh, we have to sort of, you know, just discard all that baggage and we got to look forward to the future. And as far as like, uh, you know, the idea of stripping the next generation of experiences we had, my, my nephew, to illustrate a point, 
he plays Fortnite. So he literally has a, you know, this is kind of a trope, but he has a Dragon Ball Z skin and he's running around with a shotgun shooting at Optimus Prime and Paul Muad'Dib and Snake Eyes. Uh, if you told me I could trade in my janky, broken Centurions figure for that experience of playing with my schoolmates as Goku with a shotgun shooting at my friend who was Snake Eyes, I think I would kind of take the latter. I would, I would much rather have uh, that experience. And, you know, that is kind of a, a sad thought in some respects. But, um, I mean, just stack the experiences side by side. I, I think we know which one is superior here, unfortunately. Unfortunately for us and unfortunately for my career, uh, that is a much more dynamic, memorable thing than, uh, than what I'm doing. But all the same, great question. Thank you for asking. Final question for today from Zedstar7 guitarist Brendan McGrath. I'm really digging the Remco Mantec action figure boxes I recently discovered from Distazapod number 51 and 52. What are some toy lines that had fun packaging or really cool designs? Uh, I'm always happy to see somebody go down the Mantec hole, or the manhole, as I call it for short. Um, the stuff that pops into mind for me is usually bootleg items. And uh, the one that that uh, is flashing in my brain right now is something you can just look up on eBay, type in plotter action figures, um, and this, <laughs> this will just open up a whole world to you. Uh, really good figures as well from this company, Plotter. Um, and uh, some, some pretty amazing uh, sort of packaging artwork and things like that. The packaging itself, uh, you know, pretty simple uh, sort of window boxes and blister cards, nothing fancy there. But the artwork and the, the mishmash of different figures that they were sort of ripping off is uh, pretty exceptional. So that's probably a fun one. For people to check out if you're not already familiar. Before I sign off for today, briefly I want to talk about some recent films that I've seen. This has been a real uh, week of cinema. Uh, I've rededicated myself to uh, sitting still long enough to watch a couple films. Um, so started the week off with the notification on Amazon that The Flash is now available for, <laughs> for streaming. Uh, which is not a good sign considering it was just in theaters about a week or two ago. Um, so clearly, you know, this is a, this is a dud. Um, I could not wait to see this because I know it's, it's going to be really bad. Uh, thankfully, I also had some Amazon credit, so I didn't even have to pay for this wretched, vile piece of trash. Uh, this, this is hands down one of the worst films I've ever seen. There is... No redeeming qualities to it. It has some of the worst CGI I've ever seen that they have already, uh, they were sort of hedging already in interviews saying, oh, this is a stylistic choice. It's, it's supposed to look bad. Um, truly one of the worst films ever committed to celluloid. Uh, it is, it is unfathomably bad. It is unfathomably tedious and boring. It's not even... There are some films that are terrible that you get a rush out of watching. Like recently, House, this Japanese film I think I mentioned earlier. Um, just a fantastic film. Not, not a good film, 
but a thrill ride. Just something that is so joyous and out of pocket and completely insane that you can't help but be pulled into it. And 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 I would put House in my top ten now. I think it's dethroned uh, quite a few pictures. Great film. Uh, the Flash, absolute shit. Just absolute drivel, absolute shit. And the most egregious part of it is that it completely besmirches Keaton's legacy. The fact that he agreed to come back for this, um, he should be put in jail, I think. I think we would all agree with that. Um, He's no longer a moral person. Famously, he walked away from Batman 3 because, one, he didn't want to keep doing that, and two, uh, as the story goes, he knew Tim Burton was getting jerked around and was off the project thanks to Warner Brothers, and he walked, and it probably would have been, you know, back then, probably a $10 million pay bit, payday, something like that. But in any case, he's he's lost his moral compass. This is a horrendous, horrendous film. Um, it's also, like, doesn't even make sense within its own logic. It, it, it supposes that Zod, Zack Snyder's Zod, is the same universe as Keaton's Batman, which is undoubtedly incorrect. These are, you know, pretty well-established separate worlds. Um, it's just, I, I don't even want to fucking talk anymore about it. I had a whole list of things to hit about the Flash movie, and I feel exhausted just looking at this list. It's Who fucking cares? It's a piece of shit. It's one of the worst films ever made. It is a great sort of death hymn for American cinema just dying, being strangled, and uh, smothered with a pillow in an old age home. It's done. Uh, let's move on. Absolute shit film. Oh, and, and if you think Ezra Miller's annoying, wait till there's two Ezra Millers on screen, on screen, in every single scene, arguing with each other. Wonderful choice. Anyway, piece of shit. But just when I thought it was all over, cinema redeemed itself with the new Mission Impossible. I've talked before about Mission Impossible. I love these films. I'm a huge apologist for them. Uh, this one... I mean, I think Mission Impossible 2 is the best Mission Impossible. Everybody gives me shit for that. That's fine. Um, This, I think, far outstrips Mission Impossible 2. It is a killer thrill ride. It is so much fun. No, there's not good writing or good dialogue or plots that you can follow. It doesn't matter. This is about the big set pieces and the beautiful women and the exotic locales. And it delivers on all that stuff. It's, It's American James Bond. Just go in, turn your brain off. Fantastic. See it on a big screen. It's like a loud, impactful movie. You you need to see it at the theater. And uh, it's just a rush. You know, just the same way Top Gun uh, 2, was it called? No, Maverick, sorry, was just a thrill. It was just got your adrenaline pumping. Simple as that. That's what this is too. Go enjoy it. Fantastic film. I, I, me and the Z Star boys saw it. We had a great time. Shin Kamen Rider is now on Amazon, so I watched that next. Um, for those who don't know, Hideki Anno, who obviously cut his teeth in the world of animated features, has been slowly going through and rebooting all the older tokusatsu and kaiju characters in big cinematic presentations. Uh... I really hope he does Giver next. That would be fantastic. We are far, it's been far too long, and we are due a Giver reboot. Now, I don't know a ton about Mask Rider other than 
sort of visually always being attracted to the brand, but I've never watched a ton of the episodes, despite owning hundreds of the toys. Um, this one is tough. I think if you, you know, this is a genre picture, right? This is about tokusatsu. It is very faithful to the idea of tokusatsu and all of the visual trappings of these old television shows from the 70s and 80s. Uh, as a film, I think it's kind of a harder sell. There's definitely really nice uh, cinematography. The fight scenes are great. I, I sort of wish this whole entire thing was in 3D because when they're fighting in this hyper-fast way, it clearly switches to 3D models of the characters. And it, it kind of works. I, I almost wish they had just kind of stuck with that formula. Um, but I think ultimately, like, tokusatsu is such a, you know, it's not a deep subject, right? All of the characters have flowery language and talk about philosophy before they fight and all this stuff. But it is kind of a paper-thin concept. It, it is all just leading us up to a fight. You know, it's, it's kind of the same thing you would maybe see in Dragon Ball Z, right? We don't have to have a ton of plot or contrivances or, um, you know, not a real depth to it. It is about sort of the fight scenes and set pieces. And so as a two-hour cinematic experience, I don't know, kind of like, it's kind of thin gruel in some areas. Uh, but fantastic fight scenes, wonderful costume designs, um, it's a very good proof of concept that, you know, I've always felt like tokusatsu should have continued on beyond Power Rangers and should have branched out into, like, an, an adult tokusatsu show where there's blood and, you know, it's got some edge to it. I always felt like it was a genre that, you know, we have in the United States adapted uh, animation as an adult genre, and that's no longer frowned upon in their adult animated movies, and the sort of, you know, people's tolerance for that as a serious art form has changed dramatically. And I always felt like there should be tons of tokusatsu programs in the Western world, and it's a fantastic genre. And I think that this movie is kind of a good proof of concept for, you know, a lot of the right ingredients that could happen in a show. And obviously, my interest in tokusatsu being an accepted genre is because I imagine a live-action Knights of the Slice show to follow that mold exactly. And I do think it could work. I think there's an audience there. But that being said, the trappings of the tokusatsu genre, the sort of fight scenes interspersed with philosophical debate and, you know, moody characters and all that, it's, it's a little corny to Western audiences, or at least to myself, and when you stretch it out into a long format, uh, not necessarily the most engaging thing. I think, in some respects, his Shin Godzilla was a much more successful film in taking cinema and moving that into the Godzilla mold, if that makes sense. In this one, I feel like he's taking tokusatsu and just uh, going the opposite direction, right? Adding some cinematic qualities to it, but the, the things that make a movie work are not necessarily the things that make a tokusatsu program work. And I think here the formula is starting to show. Ultraman also, I think, was much better at kind of uh, stretching out into a big cinematic experience uh, because that is 
kind of just a kaiju. It's kind of following in the same mold as Shin Godzilla. But in any case, Anu is a fantastic filmmaker. I hope he does, he gets to keep rebooting all these properties. These are all sort of efforts worth watching and are interesting and are adding to our culture. Uh, I just think this one is a little thin in terms of fully being realized as, you know, a cinematic piece of work. Now, I have not, as of the recording of this, seen Oppenheimer. I'm looking to do that later this week. I am trying to go to the 70 millimeter print of the film. There's only one theater showing that uh, at Lincoln Center in the city. So I'm trying to work out getting down there to see it. I really, really want to see it in its intended format. Um, it just might take me some time to do so. So have no opinion on Oppenheimer at this moment. However, last night we did see the Barbie movie and it was, uh, it was fantastic. It was very funny. Um, you know, I was kind of lurking on Twitter, seeing what people were saying about it. And, um, there was, you know, there's every fucking variety of idiot out there, but somebody was saying, no way this guy ain't going to see a movie that pink. And I just have to laugh to myself because if your masculinity is so fragile that seeing a film is going to uh, shatter your concept of being a man, I don't fucking know what to tell you. It sounds like you're holding on by a thread there. So um, I thought it was a very, very funny, very entertaining movie. Um, Deals with some pretty dark subjects, and it is a political movie, but I felt like they handled it pretty deftly. If you're going looking for just a, you know, a sort of Brady Bunch style reboot, uh, there's a lot more meat on the bone here, and it, it is such a fine line. This could have been fucked up so badly, and been just a, just a lecture about femininity, right? And that wouldn't have been fun for anybody. They found a way to kind of thread the needle and make it really funny. And, and you know, uh, I, I thought it was really well done. Everybody there had a great time. I haven't heard, like, such uproarious laughter in a theater uh, since I don't even know when. Maybe, like, seeing Borat for the first time. Uh, so I would recommend it. I thought it was really great. Um, we'll see if uh, Oppenheimer is any better. But uh, Barbie movie, yeah, thumbs up. So I think that's it for today's Distazapod. Thank you for the question submissions. Uh, to play us out is a Z Star 7 song. I hope you all have a great week and a great weekend and beyond. Uh, Pre-order information for our next drop is coming soon, so keep your eyes peeled. Action figure of the millennia, July and August parcels are leaving first week of August. So this next pre-sale... Your orders will be bundled with that. Everything will be going out on time. I think people are really going to like this month. I've been saying that every month or months. But um, this one is... Uh, look, nothing's going to beat getting a, a Goss in the mail before anybody else, right? Let's just be honest about that. Getting a brand new figure the day of... There's not going to be a bigger thrill than that this year. But uh, this one, I think, is going to put a lot of different pieces in people's hands and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all the builds that come out of it and we got a really fantastic stop motion animation from Kenneth West coming up that ties into this 
Very interesting characters. I'm happy with the narrative around this one. And I also have September and October locked down. And uh, I'm, I know what those are going to be. And I know what November is going to be. Just got a little question mark over December. So the rest of the year is pretty much set in stone. And I'm feeling good about it. Going to get uh, everybody their club figures. And I suppose I have to make a decision sometime soon if we're continuing on with the club into 2024. So if you have any feedback about that, if you are dying to sign up for next year and you want to do a full year, let me know. And uh, that helps me kind of figure out the path forward. So thank you and pizza out.